Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. I want to thank you for joining us today in what I consider one of the most important broadcasts to come to you that I have done in several years. In fact, I'm going to take you back to an interview that I did several years ago with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, probably the world's expert in helping young people who are confused with their gender identity or have homosexual attractions to find healing. Dr. Nicolosi happens to be a very solid Orthodox Catholic and is hated from coast to coast, if not internationally. So the topic today is how parents can help prevent homosexuality. And when I said this is an important broadcast, you can see why, because homosexuality is being pushed on us by the media, by the educational establishment, basically everywhere you're turning, uh, political forces, our Supreme Court, everywhere you're looking, this is on the move. And Dr. Nicolosi is the type of person you want to turn to for help. It's very important that if you're struggling with a significant problem, and if you're choosing a counselor for yourself or for a family member, for your children or for your adolescents, is that you turn to reliable help. And that's why I want you to hear so carefully this timeless interview I did with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, who earned his Ph.D. in psychology and is the president and chief research director of the National Association of Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. And that organization is also known as NARTH, and they can be found on the Internet. And we're going to give you some links later in the broadcast so you can contact that website. Dr. Nicolosi is author of Reparative Therapy of Male Homosexuality, also the author of Healing Homosexuality, Case Studies of Reparative Therapy. And along with his wife, Linda, he recently authored the book, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality, and we're going to be discussing that book today. For the past decade, Dr. Nicolosi has made his professional focus the treatment of unwanted homosexuality. So, Dr. Nicolosi, welcome to Faith and Family. Very happy to be with you. Good morning. Well, you know, you're a very brave man, because I would think you would earn the Politically Uncorrect Award of the Year. Absolutely. Uh, I love it. Okay, because I was going through a search engine, and, you know, I could tell some people were really hot against this, this man. And I thought, well, either he has the grace to stand for truth in the face of political opposition, or he's just doing something way off the wall. And so uh, I I want to just alert our parents a second time, because again, as I mentioned in the opening segment, so often at those times and family problems and vulnerabilities, when you finally reach out for help and the wrong help is given, and no offense to your profession, but I'm joining you, doctor, to my short list of sane psychologists. Uh, Well, I I agree. I, I am so disappointed in my profession, the psychological profession, they have totally lost perspective on what is normal, abnormal, healthy, unhealthy, totally off the charts. 
but there are still a few of us, and I don't want the listeners to become totally discouraged with psychology. Good psychology is good psychology. I always say that good psychology supports good theology. But uh, unfortunately, uh, it's become so politicized that uh, people have lost uh, confidence in, in the psychological profession. Okay, well, let's dive right into your book. I mean, to begin with, a lot of our listeners might even be taken back by the title, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. I was just watching a national primetime talk show where the host was interviewing a Christian guest and saying, well, what about homosexuality? It just is, isn't it? I mean, preventing something that uh, that's right. people are saying is genetic. What, what that's... about the whole notion of prevention? Well, that's the, you see, nobody wants to touch the subject of cause. Nobody wants to look at causation. No one wants to look at what, what makes a person homosexual. You know, the homosexual population, it's being told that it's 10%. You know, Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey did his study in the 1950s and said 10% of the population is homosexual. Well, it's not because Alfred Kinsey himself was homosexual, and he had a vested interest in, in boosting up the percentage. But really, it's about 2%. But the, the question remains, what makes that 2% homosexual? You, it's not simply genetics. You cannot reduce this complex phenomenon of homosexuality to a particular gene. And anybody that knows about genetics knows that you cannot account for something like homosexuality uh, to be accountable to, to one gene. So it's, politically, it's not politically correct to even ask what makes a homosexual. Okay, so the investigation really never even takes place. No, of course not. And, you know, you mentioned the 10%. I never quite made the connection. You mentioned your book, The Project 10, these public school sure, programs, is based on Kinsey's 10%, which is uh, some fabricated research. Of course it's fabricated research. Okay. But, but again, you know, this whole thing about sexology is very interesting because the only people that do the investigation in sexology are people that have a vested interest in promoting a sexual agenda. And most conservative people don't even go into this area. And so they just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, you know. But we're beginning to look more critically at this research because it's having such an important impact on our culture that we really have to address it. Okay, let's take your topic from Chapter 1. I, I found fascinating. It, it simply masculinity is an achievement mm -hmm. at the very heart of the homosexual condition is conflict about gender. Now, this is something vastly different from what we're hearing. Those two things, a, a conflict about gender and that masculinity is an achievement. It's <clears throat> not something that just happens. That's right. And every so-called primitive societies that have these rights of initiation and, and, and male rites of passage, you know, they recognize that masculinity is an achievement and that the boy needs special support and special encouragement and special guidance in his transition to masculinity. Now, psychologically, the boy has to disidentify from his mother and identify with his father. Now, the girl doesn't have to do this. She maintains her primary relationship with her mother, and so her femininity comes from her relationship with the mother. But the boy has to disidentify with the mother and connect with the father. Uh, and this might explain why there is more male homosexuality than lesbianism, because precisely because it's harder to be a male. And you know, some studies say 7 to 1 or 11 to 1. We don't, we're not sure exactly what the numbers are. But there's more male homosexuality than lesbianism. 
So to use an automotive analogy here, there needs to be a shift yes, in does. boyhood. What ages are we talking about we're, we're uh, talking the, about the shift begin and the, and the transition phase? Yeah, we're talking about the gender identity phase, the phase when the boy realizes that the world is divided between male and female, and which one is he going to be. And we're talking about one and a half to three years old. Okay. Very, very early. All right. That's earlier than what I would have uh, imagined yeah. you would have said. Absolutely. Okay. And it continues until when? Uh, well, that's the key phase from one and a half to three years old, where he actually disidentifies with the mother and makes that male connection with the father. Of course, the development of his masculine identity continues all the way through adolescence, where it gets deeper and more sophisticated and, and you know, uh, uh, having his uh, male peers. That's another important thing, too. There's so much co-ed activity today. Boys need to be with boys. Boys need to be separate from girls where they can really have that male bonding experience, where they can do things as boys, as separate from girls. And we're losing that, the, the, that, the importance of that in our culture. Now, before somebody uh, calls on our, on our listener line and accuses both of us of being outrageous sexist, uh, yeah. tell me if I'm not correct in saying yeah. if a boy does go through this kind of detachment from the world of women, develops his masculinity, he becomes fully capable of really loving a woman, his wife, and and have that mature, giving type of personality. That's exactly right. See, people don't realize that. The boy has to be, it's kind of like a pendulum swing. He has to swing away from the feminine, swing to the other polarity, make that masculine connection, and then he becomes capable of swinging back to a woman where he could experience intimacy. The reason why most men have difficulty with intimacy with a woman is because they don't feel, paradoxically, they don't feel in possession of their masculinity. Okay. Now, what is the cause of the gender confusion, though, in a young boy he, who doesn't successfully navigate this transition? Right. What, what, what components are necessary and what components, therefore, are missing that causes the exactly. confusion? The two things that we look at is his relationship with the mother and his relationship with the father. Okay. The mother is often, in the case of the homosexual men, and again, this is based upon almost 15 years, more than 15 years of work almost exclusively with homosexual men. This is almost the, the complete population that we have been working with here. And these are men who report that their mothers were over-involved, demanding, um, controlling, um, not really allowing the boy to disidentify with her, allowing the boy to develop his own um, masculine identity. Um, the father, more importantly, we put the emphasis on the father. Father is distant, detached, uninvolved, emotionally disconnected from his son. So when the boy reaches out to the father, the boy is trying to fulfill what we call his natural masculine striving. See, we believe that this is in nature. He was born to be male. He was wired to fulfill his natural masculine identity. So he reaches out to the father, and if the father is cold, distant, unloving, unresponsive, unencouraging, the boy will experience a narcissistic hurt. And that's why we think homosexuality is highly correlated with narcissism. He experiences a personal narcissistic hurt, and he abandons his masculine strivings and goes back to his mother. Mm, okay. And that's the pattern, and we see it all the time. And, and consequently, the male homosexual is a man who has difficulty making emotional connections with men. Okay. He, uh, may, have, he may be sexually involved with men, 
but he's not emotionally connected to men. Now, what if the father isn't simply around? I'm thinking yeah. particularly of, I read a book, uh, Fatherless America by David Blankenhorn, uh-huh. and I was surprised to read that there was a national consciousness of the importance of fathers, especially for boys, during World War II. And there was a national debate even, should we even send fathers overseas to fight Hitler, which is obviously a problem. We have come so far. Yeah, and and, and it's like they, they, and then they had the fathers coming home first. What if the father isn't even there? Well, this is interesting. If the father is not there, that in and of itself is not the damage. Okay. See, the absent father, if a boy has an absence, he, in trying to stri- uh, fulfill his natural masculine strivings, will find another male. Okay. A teacher, an uncle, a coach, a grandfather. The boy is looking for the father. But what happens in the case of the homosexual is that he experiences a hurt, okay. a rejection. So his confidence in being able to make that connection, his sense of worthiness of being able to to feel that masculine acceptance was devastated. It's annihilated. Okay. And see that, so, so it's more a damaging rather than an absence, because the absence is usually filled by someone. Okay. Now, but what it, a... Yeah, oh, go just, ahead. Just a little, a little parenthesis to that. The, fa- the mother of uh, a boy who, where there is no father figure, she has a, the additional responsibility of trying to find some male figure to spend time with him and give him that special time and attention. Now, that was going to be one of my questions for you uh-huh. because, you know, there are so many single moms and many listening. Uh, would many single moms think they have to try to be the dad as well? well they or can't it... be the dad. Okay. I mean, it doesn't work. You know, okay. they need a male. So there are certain things that mothers cannot do. And one of the things mothers cannot do is be fathers. Okay. And that goes back to this whole uh, genderless concept that we have in our culture. You know, they're talking about parents. I don't talk parent. I talk father or mother. Okay. And the generic language just doesn't work. So she has the responsibility of finding some man out there who will give this boy the opportunity to make that bonding. Okay. Now, you mentioned in your book uh, a lot of times there's marital instability associated with this. For instance, you first you mentioned the mothers perhaps overly investing in the companionship with their son, not letting right. him go. Is that somewhat of a compensating That's action? Exactly right. We talk about the classic triadic relationship. You know, all this talk about the gay gene and find, discovering the gay gene and the biological origins of homosexuality. There's really nothing there. When you look at the evidence of it, there's just nothing there that's convincing that people are born gay. But when we look at the psychological, we see the classic triadic relationship, triadic from the word triangle. Visualize a triangle. In one corner, you have the over-involved, intrusive, domineering mother. In the other triangle, you have the distant, detached, emotionally disconnected father or critical father. And then in the other corner, you have the temperamentally sensitive, introverted boy. He's artistic. He's timid. He's shy. You see the mother and the son have a special relationship. Father and son have a disconnected relationship. And typically during this period of time, the gender identity phase, the mother and the father do not have a good relationship. Marital discord, poor communication between mother and father is very, very typical during this period of time. Okay. They're not working together for now, the boy's best interest. You, you mentioned in your book that 
later in life, this gender confusion leads a young man to, quote, fall in love with what he has lost. In other words, the sexual attractions that he begins experiencing aren't genetic. They're stemming directly from what we've just been mentioning. Absolutely. So that's why we call it reparative therapy. Gays get very angry when they hear reparative therapy. Oh, you're trying to repair us like a car. You're trying to repair us like a, a transmission. No. What we're trying to convey is that homosexual behavior itself is an attempt to repair what he did not get in childhood. The, the man with a homosexual problem is trying to make that emotional connection, but he doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't feel capable. He, he, is, he, he got the painful lesson from his father. You are inferior. You are unworthy of, of, of masculine love. You are unworthy of, of being bonded with. And so there's still this drive, and the drive becomes sexualized. So homosexual behavior is an attempt to make that connection with the masculinity that he does not feel in possession of. There is, there is a shocking account in your book. You were describing a, a counseling situation with a young man, and he was asked, what is the only time during the week you're not having these homosexual attractions? Yes. And he mentions, while I'm playing soccer. Oh, Absolutely. This is not surprising. We do this every day. See, this is very interesting, and this, is, this goes against the argument for the normal, natural argument. When, when the homosexual man is feeling secure in his masculinity, he's feeling good about himself, he's feeling secure in his masculinity, he has no homosexual attractions. When he is feeling weak, inadequate, disconnected, unmasculine, his homosexual temptations increase. Okay. Now, if homosexuality was a normal condition, it would not be controlled by how he feels about himself. Correct. I mean, heterosexuality, wouldn't it be absurd if a man said, you know, when I'm feeling lousy about myself, I'm sexually attracted to my wife, and when I'm feeling good about myself, I'm not attracted to her. That makes no sense at all. Now, following the, the idea that sports are, well, actually, sports have become... I'm trying to be be mindful of the language in this radio program. Right, right. Sports have become the the religion of of the land, and and it's interesting you mentioned that very often, even a boy who simply is lacking the physical eye-hand coordination, a little slow in that area or something like that, could kind of aggravate uh, a, a tendency, maybe coupled with some of these other things. Talk about sports for a moment in boys' development. Well, sports are very important. Uh, I, again, um, it's not really about sports. It's not about baseball. It's not about soccer. It's not about football. It's about that physical connection with other boys, that physicality. Boys bond by physical engagement. When fathers, we, do, we, we have studies showing that when fathers are babysitting their sons, they play with their sons. Is that physicality. And so much of homosexual behavior or homosexual interest is really a desire not for sex, but for that physical closeness, that physical connectedness. And that's how males make the connection. And they do it through, through the cultural uh, structure of uh, organized sports. But the sports itself is not important. It's just a way of connecting. Okay. So some practical tips for fathers raising sons. Just, uh, I would assume, wrestling in the family room Absolutely. is not a bad idea. Absolutely. Very, very important. In fact, when we uh, work with uh, parents who are concerned about their sons, we, we give them very specific things to do, one of which is have that physicality. The men that we work with here at the clinic 
who are, who are dealing with unwanted homosexuality will say, my father never hugged me, my father never touched me, my, well, I never had that physical connection with my father. And that's why we encourage these fathers to do that. Okay. What about some just very practical tips for mothers for who have sons going through this period of identification? Uh-huh. What could they do? Uh, uh, moms, back off. Okay. You know, I mean, reflect the boy's masculinity. Let him feel good about himself. And don't stand in the way between him and a father figure. A lot of these mothers are, are, are the primary uh, connection. Okay. They should be secondary. At this now, point. I don't know if this is normal, but this is kind of my family. Okay. Uh, uh, mom's kind of a little more on the protective side, and dad's kind of encourages some what I call regulated, risky behavior. Exactly. You know, exactly. That's a good thing for boys. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Now, what about the parent who's listening and thinking, okay, uh, you know, like reading uh, medical descriptions of medical problems and such, you think you get every disease that you're you're reading about. Sure. How can a parent discern when there's a level of problems that would require to taking some action versus the parent says, you know, my son played with dolls once. Is he destined to become a homosexual? I mean, how do we, how do how we do you know accurately know when we have a problem on our yeah. hands? Sometimes we'll have parents call up and say, oh, I think we're, my, son, my son is gay. He's showing these indications. And then when we talk to them, we realize that the boy is just being a normal little kid. You either we expect a certain amount of uh, curiosity and, and cross-gender activity for a joke. Sometimes a boy will put on you know, his mother's uh, uh, earrings or something, and just be silly and clown around. That's a one-time thing. You know, we can't be worried about that. But what we find is that when we talk about the, GI, the GID condition, the gender identity disturbed child, that's, that's a clinical diagnosis. That is when the boy is systematically rejecting masculinity and showing a, a very clear and uncompromising um, identification with the feminine. I mean, it's very, very clear. Anybody can see it. Okay. And those are the indications that we have a GID condition here. And the same thing for the girl. You know, even though we talk mostly about boys, um, sometimes we'll have the, the, what we call the tomboy. And it's not just a girl who likes to put on the, the jeans and run around. She really wants to be a boy. She is really denying her femininity. And the GID boy is really denying his masculinity and wants to be a girl. Now, is there a danger of parents once they recognize some some real indications of simply delaying taking action? And, you know, it's hoping common. it's a passing phase. It's how how very, common is that? And how it's long? Very is it? common. In fact, uh, it, it's 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 very very common. Um, researchers show that these parents are concerned for a long time, but they do nothing. And, and one of the reasons why they do nothing is because it's not politically correct to do anything. You go to your counselor and they go, oh, it's just a phase. Uh, you don't want him to be macho. You want him to actualize his feminine side, blah, blah, blah. And they are being discouraged from taking this seriously. That's why we wrote this book. We wrote this book because it goes against so much of the popular, in fact, um, you know, the Catholic uh, bishop's uh, paper came out a while ago. What's it called, Always Our Children? Yes, in fact, I wanted to ask you about Always Our okay. Children. Now, look at the advice they give. They say, if you suspect that your child is dealing with homosexuality, our advice is do nothing, wait and see. Right, just Wrong. be kind to them, which is good advice, but basically it's a do-nothing advice. It's absurd. It's absurd. 
third. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, I've just, in fact, posted some articles on my website giving some very strong critique to that document. Well, that, to me, as a Catholic, that was an outrageous document. And I'll tell you why it was outrageous. Because the, the people who they consulted were not the people they should have consulted. They could have consulted Father John Harvey, who's the founder of Courage. They could have consulted other people like myself, who are Orthodox Catholic and do research in this area. But instead, they chose some other experts, in quotes. Yeah, and uh, I'll just uh, say, you know, we have a lot of problems in the Church at this point, and you need to just be very careful who you lean on uh, for advice. You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm your host, Steve Wood, and you just heard my interview with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. If you would like to learn more about the organization that we refer to, NARTH, N-A-R-T-H, simply go to the website narth.org, N-A-R-T-H dot org, and you'll find there the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice. Dr. Nicolosi's book is widely available currently. It's entitled, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. I strongly encourage you to buy a copy of that book now. Even if your family never has a need for it, you should know that California, New Jersey, and the District of Columbia have all passed legislation outlawing the type of therapy Dr. Joseph Nicolosi does, just since I interviewed him. And now they're headed for the United Nations to ban it there. So if you want this information, I strongly recommend you get it now. If you want a copy of this broadcast where I interview Dr. Nicolosi to have just in your arsenal of family-friendly resources, this has been Episode 71 of Faith and Family also like to recommend for you a critique of that document, Always Our Children, highly defective advice. And if you want a good critique of it and what to do if you have a child with gender identity confusion or even homosexual leanings, you want to go to the CMA, Catholic Medical Association website. Just Google Catholic Catholic Medical Association. Go to their store, and you'll see two resources there. One, a book entitled To Protect and to Prevent. Just 84 pages, but very valuable. And then secondly, there is a pamphlet, Homosexuality and Hope. And I really need to emphasize that second word in that booklet by the Catholic Medical Association, that there is hope to change. And our culture is fast moving to outlaw just even the knowledge of how this change could take place. So get the resources, educate yourself. Until next time, this is Steve Wood. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.